0: Well, good morning, Grace Life, and good morning, guests, and good morning, people people watching from home. It's okay. The green light's still on. That's got to be good, all right? My name's Tommy. I'm uh, the lead pastor here, and it's a joy to be in the book of Romans with you again. been waiting on this for a while. I know most of you've been waiting on this, too. When are we going to get back in Romans? We took a break for Advent, and hopefully it was a helpful break. It was a good break, just to contemplate the glories of the incarnation and the unspeakable condescension that Jesus accomplished when He became a man and lived a perfect life and died for rebellious sinners like us. Um, but we're back in Romans 12 today, and I want to start by praying, and then we're going to just cover two verses today. We're not even really going to cover both verses. In fact, we're not even going to cover all of the first verse. But today's kind of an introduction. <laughs> I know. I know. It's. We'll be done with Romans by the time I die. Maybe we'll see. Um, but let's pause and let's pray and let's ask for God's help because we always need it, don't we? I, I love the verse Matt uh, referenced earlier, apart from Jesus, you know, we can do nothing, not a few things, not some slight things. We can't do anything. So let's together abide in him. Let's draw near him together. Lord, help us to draw near you. You remind us every day of our insufficiency, like the verse that Christy quoted um, Your strength is made perfect in our weakness, Lord. And we feel that, we see that, sometimes more clearly than we do at other times, God. And uh, our frailties, being human, Lord, just uh, being reminded again of we exist in a a fallen body on a broken, cursed planet. And everywhere we look, we see effects of the fall. We see sin or, or indirect consequences to sin, and we feel those, we experience those, Lord. And Yet you're, we are reminded that you came into this broken, fallen, sinful planet, Lord, and you became like one of us, except without sin. And you are a high priest. You're sympathetic and compassionate to our weaknesses. You have walked where we've walked, Lord. You've experienced what we've experienced, and yet you were victorious. So today we remember, Lord, that, uh, that you understand. You see us. You understand us. You know us. And you know what we need. And and God, I pray you would help us to, to have our minds open up and our hearts open up to the truths and the powers and the beauty and the reality, glorious reality uh, of these verses, what they teach us, Lord. And I pray this would be a great series for our church, that we would learn what it means to offer ourselves to God, and that we would have the proper motivation and foundation and the grounds to do that, and to do it in a way that pleases you, Lord. And it's going to be transformative. I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read this verse first. Uh, Just Romans chapter 12. If you have a copy of God's word, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here we go. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, excuse me, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in talking to some of you about this passage, I've learned from quite a few of you, actually, that this verse, and I just heard it again from Christy, this verse represents kind of a a milestone for you, a benchmark, a time of clarity, maybe, a time where you grew deeper in your understanding of what the gospel is, what God requests of you, or the power that you need to accomplish that, and that um, it's kind of like a wallpaper for you, and you wouldn't be alone. Lots of people can pinpoint a time of dramatic change in their life. You know, one of those people was the lady who wrote the hymn we sang earlier, um, I Consecrate Myself to You. Her name was Frances Havergal, and she was converted when she was 14 years old, and she figured out that God had given her a really sharp mind. And like most people who are intelligent and sharp, she wrestled and struggled with what to do with that. And uh, there was a breaking point when she was 14, and she gave literally everything to God. She sold all her jewelry, and she gave the proceeds to the mission society, local mission society in the city where she lived in England. And uh, then she went on to study, and this is so cool, this was in 1874, I think. She studied and learned six foreign languages, including Greek and Hebrew. Not bad. Yeah, I was kind of like, I read that. And I'm like, oh man, maybe I'm not crushing it the way I thought it was. <laughs> Barely speak English, you know. <clears throat> and then she went on to write 100 hymns, you know, in her spare time, 100 hymns. And she wrote poetry and she did a lot of other cool stuff and she realized she was really a gifted evangelist. God gave her just a winsome personality and he gave her away with people. So she began to see, you know what, my life is to be lived on mission for Jesus. And uh, one night when she went and visited a house and there were a lot of unbelievers there and a mother came to her and she said, will you please speak to my two daughters? They're really far from the Lord and we're just at a loss to know what to do. And she prayed and she talked to those two daughters and and before midnight, both of them had pledged themselves to Jesus and and given their lives to him. And she was so overjoyed. She laid in bed. Don't you love the cool stories behind songs? Those just aren't created in a vacuum. They're, They're poetry. They're an expression. They're art. That's what music is art. She laid in bed, and this hymn just came to her. She wrote this hymn before she drifted off to sleep at midnight, and it's become probably her most popular hymn. And uh, can, I, can I just, again, I know he's saying this. Let me, let me rehearse some of the words here, but it came from a meditation in her bed after using her gifts for God's glory, her meditating on this verse, especially verse 1, which is, Offer yourself to God. The word is, Present your bodies, We'll talk about the body part next week. That's synonymous with give your whole self to God. Give everything, not just your mind, not just your spirit. Give your body. Give your life. Give your time. Give your talents. Give your intellect. Give your schedule, your checkbook, your calendar, all of it to Him. But the, the, the language in this verse is kind of priestly. This would have looked back, Paul's looking back to what a lot of people would have understood in that day an Old Testament um, burnt offering. It wasn't a, a sin offering it was a a thank you offering. And you would present it, you would go to the temple and you would present that, you would offer that up to God. So she's in bed rehearsing this and these are the words, take my life and let it be consecrated. That means presented, offered, set apart and offered to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, right? Take my voice and let me sing, and she could sing too. Always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite what I withhold. She doesn't mean the insect mite, it's a different kind of mite there. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet, its treasure store. Take myself. So she's summing it all up here. Take me, take all of me, and I will be ever only all for thee. I can't think of a more beautiful Poetic expression and summary of Romans 12 in that last line. Because she's basically rehearsing what Paul said. She's saying, Take all of me, all of it, my entire life, everything, my whole self, and give it back to, give it back to you, Lord. I'm, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to you. I am in your kingdom. I'm in your family. I'm your possession, I'm your servant, I'm your bond servant. I know the word slave carries some offense to it, but that's what doulos really means in the Bible. We're slaves of Christ. He's a much better master, isn't he? So that's what this is talking about. And probably more than a few of you that I even know about can chart back milestone and like a change in your life to Romans chapter 12, and there's a reason for this, man. This is a really powerful verse. It's a hinge verse. It's like a threshold from... All the deep, rich, profound theology about who we are in Christ, what God has accomplished for us through Jesus, and then how that translates into a changed life. Old things have passed away and behold, take note, all things become new. What does that new life look like? What shape does it take? How does it mold us and form us and fashion us? What do our relationships look like? How do we suffer? How do we face death? How do we handle criticism? How do we relate to the government? How do we handle other Christians in the body of Christ who have different convictions than we do? Not just maybe second-tier, third-tier theological convictions like when is Jesus coming back, uh, but other things like should we celebrate holidays? Should I take my kids trick-or-treating on October 31st? You know, we may smile and laugh at that. You know, that's split churches before. And this gives us in chapter 14 specifically instruction how do we handle those things? How do we relate to the world? Do we withdraw and huddle behind the pulpit and say, I was waiting for Jesus to come back, or do we get out there and engage? How do we do those things? Well, Romans 12 through 16 answers to those questions. Romans 1 through 11 was simply foundation and roots for all of that. So I know that there's probably, this is an oversimplification, but there's probably two types of people out there. And watching from home two types there's the romans 1 through 11 type man you live for theology you got like a martin luther coffee mug or something right and you love doctrine you love doxology you love man to study systematic theology and biblical theology that gets you up and alert and awake you could talk about it until jesus comes back in fact you are right you don't even know that there's some people that don't share your enthusiasm for it that's okay though God made us all different. Maybe call yourself the Cerebrum Christian, right? And you're a little bit bummed. Let's be honest. You're a little bit bummed, man. You're you're, you're not saying goodbye to theology altogether because you never say goodbye to theology in Romans, right? But you're saying farewell to a lot of the deep, rich, pregnant theology with the gospel from the first 11 chapters. And now there's commands. Did you know that there are 39 commands in Romans chapter 12? 39 That's like you know what a command is it's an, there's three types of sentences we learn in elementary school right declarative interrogative and imperative these are this whole chapter man is like rich with imperatives now some of you that gets you awake and alive. You love it. You want the list. Just tell me what well, I don't care about all that other stuff. I get it. I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Jesus has made me new. He's forgiven me. I get it. Da, 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 da. Let's get on to the good stuff. What do I do? How am I supposed to live my life? Just give me a grocery list. Just somebody tell me what to do. Those are the, it's an oversimplified uh, dichotomy of the kinds of people who are reading the Bible and who are probably sitting here this morning. And so the question is this, why is there more in Romans? Why do we have chapters 12 through 16? I mean, do you remember how chapter 11 ended? Yeah, a perfectly good ending, I thought. We spent several weeks on it. Remember this? <laughs> yeah, I know, haha, several weeks is an understatement. Well, check this out. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then check this ending out, man. Can you get any better than this? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It even says amen. It's like, that's the Baptist punctuation mark, right? I was like, we're done. Let's go read at Cracker Barrel. Why are there five more chapters? Well, I want to give you just three, just because I want I want to help you. There's three reasons. Number one, because, you know, that cerebrum part of you may feel like Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration. You're up high on the mountain. You're with Jesus. He's revealed himself. He's pulled back the arms of his flesh and shown you his glory, the Shekinah glory, right? And you're like, oh, Lord, this is so good. Let's just stay here. Let's just build, I'll just build three tabernacles. No need to go back down there from the mountain. I like it up here in the theological atmosphere, right? And so some of you are like that, but we, we got to go back down the mountain. And here's why. Here's why. Three reasons. Number one, the Bible goes on. <laughs> the Bible, there's five more chapters, and we go where God leads us, right? We need these five chapters or they wouldn't be there. The Bible says all Scripture is what? Profitable. That's right. It's, and it's useful for instruction and in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we need every jot and tittle of the Bible. And this is apostolic teaching. This is the Apostle Paul. He's inspired. He has authority. He's seen the risen Christ. He's authorized. So he continues, so therefore we continue with him. Second reason, Christianity is not just a teaching. It's not just a belief. It's not just a set of doctrines or theological abstract things you sign off on or check a box. It's actually a life. I mean, we've called this entire study in Romans Engage, right? We're engaging with God. We're engaging with ourselves. We're engaging with one another. And we're engaging with a world that is hopelessly lost in their sin. And they need to be found by Jesus. And he's going to use us as instruments to do that. So Christianity is not just a teaching. It's also a life. It's not just a way of thinking, but it's a way of living. It's a way of behaving. Your your creed, you could say it this way, he goes from creed to conduct. He's giving us practical implications of all this reap, this uh, rich, deep theology. Christianity is not just about the mind, but it's also about the will. Jesus in chapter 13, he said this, he said, if you know these things, happy are you if you what? Do them. Happy are you if you do them. We're supposed to be a people, Titus chapter 2 says, that are zealous for good works. So I pray that whatever side of the equation you're on, that that you're zealous, we approach these things with zeal. Not only does the Apostle Paul lead us here, but Christianity leads you here. Christianity is a belief that leads to behavior. It's a creed that leads to conduct. And then here's the third reason, because we encounter difficulties. I alluded to this earlier. We encounter difficulties as born-again, blood-bought sons and daughters of the king that we didn't encounter before. You're not in conflict about the things uh, as an unbeliever that you are when you become a believer. When you're an unbeliever, you just follow your heart, right? (laughs) I mean, that's what the world tells you to do. That's your default position anyway. When you're a Christian, your heart is redeemed in Christ, but you got that old, you know, it's called the old sin nature, right? It's still there and there's a battle. And so you're in conflict, you need help, you need guidance, you need instruction. You need to know how do I handle this situation? And without chapters 12 through 16, you wouldn't have an answer to that, right? We, we often assume that. We assume, you know, the morality of the New Testament, uh, but we assume that for a reason. It's been around for thousands of years. That's why there's a platform for it. We need help. Like I said, how do we relate to one another? How do we relate to a government if we're not in agreement with the government? What do you do then? I mean, here, we talked about this in staff the other day. I love our staff meetings. So if marijuana becomes legal in Florida, right? If it becomes legal and, and you're presented with an opportunity to do it, then what? It's not a, because so often we fall back on Romans 13, right? You got to obey the government. What if the government says, hey, you know what? You can, I, yeah, I don't care. If you're not even 21, you can drink. Uh, if you want to smoke weed, go for it. If you want to have an abortion, go for it. So then what, what do you do? How do you know what to do? I mean, hopefully you're not trusting in the government to tell you what's right or wrong, right? I mean, we're long gone from that. The moral ambiguity there is laughable. So what do you do? Well, that's why we have Romans 12 through 16. That's why we have Ephesians 4 through 6. It's why we have a lot. If you read the New Testament, you're going to see a pattern. You're going to see theology and doctrine and specifically gospel doctrine taking you deep, deep, deep into the Mariana Trench of what Jesus has accomplished to rescue you. And then you're going to get some practical outworking of that. Because Jesus did this, or because Jesus did that, let me use proper grammar, because Jesus did that, your life can and should look like this. That's a pattern of teaching you see in the New Testament. And it's helpful. we're wired that way, man. We need motivation for doing the things we do. That is so important. In fact if I could just summarize today in one sentence, it would be this. Why you do what you do as a Christian is not only just as important as what you do, I would say this, it's more important. God cares about what motivates you to live the kind of life you live. For Him, it matters. In fact, you could have two people, and I'm sure there probably are, two people in this auditorium and they are both seeking to live a life that pleases God. They're trying to read their Bible, they want to. They're trying to obey Jesus. They're trying to give themselves to Him. They wanna pray, they wanna read their Bible, they wanna share Christ with others, they want their life to come in alignment with the Bible. But they are both doing it for completely opposite reasons. Completely, I would say radically different reasons. One of them is doing it because they have assurance that Christ died for them, that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that they're anchored, they're secure, they have hope. They're doing it out of gratitude. You could say it that way. The other person is doing it because they're scared to death. Christy mentioned this just for a little bit, right? Sometimes apprehension and anxiety can boil out of this. They're not really secure in their understanding of what Christ, it doesn't mean they're an unbeliever. They could be, they could be, but the natural default position of the human heart were wired toward works righteousness. We think in terms of accounting, you know, wages earned if if we want god's favor and his love we got to work so you got the one over here working out of gratitude and they're secure and they're anchored and they're happy and the other one is so paranoid and insecure they're trying to work up favor they're like man i gotta have a good day i gotta have a good week or god's gonna get me they're afraid you could say it this way this one is obeying um because this one is obeying because jesus died for them and and they have god's favor. This one is obeying because they want God's favor, and they're trying to work towards it. This one's working from assurance. This one's working for assurance. Let me ask you a question. Are the, which, which one of those is going, going to have a more enjoyable Christian experience? Well, you know the answer to that. We're going to come back to that. So that's the third reason. The first reason we got to go on, first reason we have chapters 12 through 16, is because they're there, right? We follow, we keep moving. Second one is, Christianity is not just the teaching, it's a life. And third, because we encounter difficulties and, and problems, and we need that. So what God has joined together, let not man or woman separate, right? We got 1 through 11, we got 12 through 16, and now today is, is starting our journey. And this is all about offering, you know. If we're honest, guys, let's walk in the light today. When we offer things, we don't always do it willingly, do we? We often do it begrudgingly. We often do it because we don't we don't want to do it, but feel like we, we kind of have to. And it reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about a farmer who had a prize cow. And this cow was pregnant, and she gave birth to twin calves. One was brown, and one was tan, and the farmer was overjoyed. He ran into the farmhouse, and he told his wife, the heifer gave birth to two calves, one is brown, one is tan. I couldn't be happier. And she said, you know what? God is so good to us. You know what you need to do? You need to, you need to dedicate one of those calves to the Lord. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. I will. I, I will, honey. And she said, well, which one are you going to dedicate? And he said, I, I don't know. I don't want to get in a rush about it. I need time to figure it out. She said, okay. Well, a few months passed, one of the calves grew sick. And despite the farmer's best efforts to nurse this calf back to health, it, it, it died and he walked into the farmhouse, he was crestfallen, he was miserable, he was dejected and his wife picked up all night and she said, honey, what in the world happened? And he said, babe, he said, this morning the Lord's calf died. Do you get it? (laughs) The Lord's calf died, right? It's his, it wasn't it wasn't wasn't the man's, it wasn't the farmer's calf, it was the Lord's calf. So often, if we're honest, that little story is kind of funny but it's also a parable about the way we view offering ourselves. We are reluctant. We want to hedge our bets, right? The things that we give away are things that sometimes aren't that important. Guys, let's be honest. What do you give away to the thrift store? What do you give to the Hope Pregnancy Center, right? Well, this is kind of old. It's kind of faded. It's threadbare. I've washed it like 50 million times. I don't even like it anymore. It's dirty. I mean, hopefully you don't give that stuff to the Hope Resource Center. But sometimes people do that. Something's even broken, or it's, you know, it's gently used, slight smell of urine. Here, I'll give it away to the thrift store, right? Yeah, no, that's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> but it's true. That's the way we're wired. We so often give things begrudgingly that don't hold that much important to us anymore, and that's not what God wants, guys. God doesn't want our leftovers. Paul's not asking you for a favor here. So let's get into the outline. Two points, and I'm not going to get through the first one. Okay. I mean, I will maybe get through the first one, okay? So offer yourselves to God. That's really all of Romans 12. The whole chapter is going to talk about what does offering yourself to God look like? And the first point is willingly. How do you offer yourself to God? Two realities, one, willingly, and two, holy. But the first one is the most important one, and the most powerful one, and it is willingly. Let's look at it here, because he says this four different ways in this passage. Paul is telling us to give ourselves away willingly. Willingly. Here's the first way that he says that. It's, he says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. And that's a really good choice by the translators, because this word, it's actually a compound word. Let's nerd out for a minute. The word is parakaleo. Para means beside. Kaleo means to call. So I get the picture of somebody running. You're running and they run up beside you and they're, and they're like, hey, I just want to come up here and I want to call on you and encourage you to do something. That's what Paul's doing. He's an apostle. He's got authority from God, but he's not yelling. He's not making a distant request. He's not throwing down the hammer. He's not strong-arming you or twisting your arm. This is a, an appeal. This is a gentle appeal He is arguing with you, but not in in an aggressive or a militant sense. He's calling alongside of you, and he's appealing to you gently as an apostle to do this. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, here's the other three ways he does this. The first one is he says, therefore... Therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it? Therefore. Yeah, there's a good one. You remembered. So he's looking back, as I've said before, he's looking back to all these 11 chapters that have gone on before. And he knows that if you look back and you understand the arguments that he has made, that you understand exactly what God has done for you in Christ. You know that he has purchased you he's justified you, he's redeemed you, he's forgiven you, he's given you a new identity, he's given you assurance, he's given you comfort, he's given you stability, he's anchored you, nothing can separate you, and you've got glory coming to you. You can't lose, you're more than a conqueror. He knows if you understand that, then your response of offering yourself to him will be a joyful and a willing willing one. It won't be begrudgingly, it won't be half-heartedly, you won't be stingily just trying to You know, God won't be trying to pry your fingers open. It will be a thank you offering. It's not a guilt offering or a sin offering. That's already been presented by Jesus, and it's been accepted by God. This is your thank you offering, an offering of gratitude. So this, therefore, looks back. Listen, Romans 12 through 16 is built upon something, right? And it's built upon the foundation of what Jesus did for you. And it's a deep and a strong and a powerful foundation, right? We need that. We need that. You could say this, Paul knows that in order for us to offer ourselves up to God willingly, we need to be in a position where we can see who God is and what he did. And man, does Romans 1 through 11 put you in that position. You are on top, as we said at the last part of that section. It's like a vista mountaintop view. He's showing you all the glories of what Jesus has done for you. And this is an on-ramp for you to respond. This is your appropriate response. So the appeal, the therefore, and then he says by the mercies of God. The way he summarizes all of chapters 1 through 11 is, is by the word mercy. And it's in the plural, the many, many, many mercies. I mean, how could, we could spend the rest of the sermon and we won't. We've already done that. Rehearsing all of the mercies that God has shown to you because of Jesus. One of them is this. You're sitting here right now, and hopefully you're filled with hope and assurance. You're not in hell is that a mercy? It's not a small one. That's a biggie. That's a big one. Because if it it were not for Christ, that's exactly where we would be. We'd be in hell, and, and God would have done us no wrong. We were born in sin. We were born in rebellion. We were born, there are none righteous, no, not one. All of us have turned aside. We've all ran away from God as fast as we could. We're thankless. Chapter one tells us that. None of us were thankful to God. We're idolaters. All of us put something, grab something that God created and usually gave us as a gift. We abuse it, pervert it, and put it at the center of our life and base our whole identity and existence around it. We say, my life doesn't have value and meaning unless I have this thing. And this thing is not God, it's something else. And yet still God came to us and rescued us, opened our eyes, redeemed and resurrected our heart, and revealed himself to us. So it's the appeal that helps us to be a willing, give, give ourselves a willing offering. It's the therefore, it's the mercies, and then here's a really powerful one. And unfortunately, rarely do I disagree with the ESV, and who am I, man? I'm just a dummy from Arkansas. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, but from the resources that I've read and, and the word that's used here, um, spiritual worship is pro- probably doesn't give us Westerners the best idea of what Paul is saying here because the word for spiritual is actually uh, logikos. What's that? What do we get from that word? Anybody know? Logic, right. So some translations say it this way. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your logical worship. One translation says this, it's your reasonable response to what God has done for you in Christ. And here again is, this is the most powerful leveraging tool to me to understand why should we willingly, joyfully, cheerfully offer ourselves to God? Because listen, God doesn't get any glory from from reluctant or begrudging offerings, does He? He loves a cheerful giver. We use that for money, but you know what? God loves a cheerful giver when it comes to your life. He wants you to freely and joyfully and gratefully offer yourself to Him. And what Paul is saying here is, It's the most reasonable thing in the world for you to do to willingly offer yourself to God when you see who He is, what He's done for you, how far He's brought you. And man, I love that. That is powerful. That is powerful. In fact, one translation says this, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around, and place it before God as an offering. That's what it means. That's what the word present means. It means to stand beside something. It's, like I said, it's priestly language. This is what one man said. Once you have a a good view of God's mercy, anything less than a total, complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. If you give yourself partially or half-heartedly, you are simply not thinking. Logikos, right? You're not thinking you are not looking at what Jesus did. If what he did does not move you or break the ice over your soul, you must ask yourself if you have ever understood the gospel. So what Paul does is, the last 11 chapters, he's given us a really, really good view of what Christ has done for us. And like I said, he did the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. The very end of that chapter, there's a similar doxology And an amen. And then Paul says this I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you hear that similar language? I mean, Ephesians is just like a more concise version of Romans. He's saying, This is the calling that God's put on your life. This is what He's done for you in Christ. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is the calling God's put on your life, and here's the worthy life, right? Don't live an unworthy life. That's unreasonable. That's illogical. That doesn't make any sense in light of what God has done for you in Jesus. We are reading a book together right now. Our elders are. It's one of the best books on not just elders, but the Christian leadership that I've ever read. And there's an especially powerful chapter, uh, the one we were talking about the other day, Matt and Kyle uh, and elders, we're going to be talking about this Tuesday night. But I love it, man, because the author, Robert Foon, he's talking about repentance and he's talking about worship. And he lists, it's just very helpful, very practical. He's listing out steps of repentance. Repentance means to turn from your sin. As much of you know, as much as you know about your sin, turning from it to as much as you know of God. And we know a lot about God from the first 11 chapters of Romans, right? But Robert Thune, the author, he's, he's helping us take these practical steps of repentance. And he talks about idolatry. And idolatry, I know we've talked about it here before. We, we so often think that's something that primitive people did that are, you know, in third world countries. They, they you know, build these pagan... Uh, Buildings are altars to 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 pagan gods, and you know we were much too civilized and cultured and refined to do that. But, but my friends, the Bible simply uses the word idolatry to describe something that has become so central to your life that you can't imagine living without it, and that something is not God. It can be something like a spouse, or money, or popularity, or beauty. It could be anything. It could be good a good thing that you've made an ultimate thing, and then it's a problem, right? It's a god replacement. So this book, Robert Thune, he helps the reader take practical steps toward repentance, and and here's what he does. Man, this is so good. First, he says, you're supposed to name your idol. So first, you name your idol. And he says, name it, confess it. And he says, do it right now in prayer. In fact, I have a slide for this. Is this it? Yeah. Can you guys see that? He says, name it right now. Father, I confess that I have sought this served this and let this dominate my life and my heart instead of you. Please forgive me. That's the step one in repenting. As you acknowledging, coming clean, walking to the light with God and yourself and saying, Lord, this thing over here has become central in my life. All the planets of my life are orbiting around this, the wrong thing, and it's doing damage. And here's the second step. That's point one. That's a big one. Here's the second step neuter your idol. Don't just name your idol, neuter your idol. That's vet talk, right? You know what that means? Strip it of its power, man. Take away its ability to reproduce. Stop it dead in its tracks. So here's what he says you do to neuter it. You you show how weak it is. You say, God, this idol cannot deliver what it promises. It fails me time and time again. It has not done for me what you have done. Now, listen, guys, this is the most important part of this message today. Paul says that offering yourself to God is your reasonable, logical, spiritual act. Do you know what's not reasonable and what's illogical and what, in fact, is, is insane? People have said it this way, sin makes you do stupid things, right? Sin is, is, is illogical, it's irrational. And the author of this book is doing what the Apostle Paul does. He's saying, you know what, you need to think about what you're doing. Is offering your life up in service to God rational? Will it yield good things for you? Is it is it a good life? Will you flourish? Will that help you be faithful and flourish and thrive and be happy? Absolutely. Not in the way that the world tells you it will, but the promises that the Bible makes. Absolutely. And your story will end well idolatry, and sin, and rebellion, and disobedience, and idolatry, on the other hand, how illogical are they? Well, you've got to think deeply about that, and Paul wants you to do that. That's why this author is saying, hey, even do it out loud. You want to radically repent? Take these steps. Do it out loud. Say, Lord, I'm an idolater, and this thing, I'm going to name it. This thing has become central, and maybe it's your safety. I don't know. Safety's a myth, isn't it? We can feel safe in an asteroid. I don't want to make you apprehensive if you struggle with that kind of thing. You know, safety's a myth, guys. It's appointed unto man and woman once to die and then to be judged, right? The day of our death has already been appointed by God. Now, you don't want to shorten your life, <laughs> but there's nothing you can do to lengthen it, but you should still eat kale and, you know, join the gym and all that stuff. Another sermon for another day. Sovereignty, responsibility. The, the point that I'm making, though, and what Robert Thune makes is, you need to talk, talk to yourself and talk to God like Psalm 42. Why am I downcast on myself? So? Oh, because I'm, I'm committing idolatry here and it's wrecking my life. So I'm going to name it. I'm going to neuter it. And then here's the best part, man. Where am I at here? Third step. And it's up there. You can, you can read it with me. He says this. Um, this is replace your idol. This is the worship part. This is where you appreciate, rejoice, and rest in all that Jesus has done for you. And then he invites the reader to pray. He says, right now, meditate on the beauty of Jesus and thank him for the specific ways that he succeeds where your idols fail. Guys, this is such a helpful exercise. When you're thinking about sin and you're being tempted and you've gone there before, this can really help you. This is a, gift. This is a treasure that the Bible gives you this. And he, this author is just pointing that out. You can say, for instance, Jesus, you are my salvation. You are my righteousness. You are the only one who never fails me, who will never leave me, and who can truly satisfy me. The idol of blank promises me blank, but it fails to deliver. That's why it's illogical. That's why it's irrational. That's why it doesn't make any sense for us to keep doing it. But our hearts, we're drawn to that, right? Thank you that you alone are the one who can give me that. Thanks for these specific promises in Scripture. And then he says, identify specific promises that counteract your idol. You know what you're doing here? You're just fighting temptation and sin with greater promises of the gospel because every temptation and sin promises you something, just like the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve stood in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent whispered to them, hey, this sure does look good, doesn't it? You do you. You follow your heart. You be you which is the cultural narrative that we hear today, right? Follow your heart. The Bible never says that. The Bible says keep your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow all the issues of life. All of it spring all the issues of life. Proverbs 4:23. But the world tells you to do the world says be true to yourself and Jesus says deny yourself. There's a better way. There's a better way. So I love this book. I appreciate this book. Mike McKinley, if you take this for temptation from the enemy too, how do you handle temptation from that When that moment, the pressure starts mounting, again, this can be useful. Check this out. Mike McKinley has a humorous illustration about what would happen if Satan told us the truth when he tempted us. <laughs> I mean, he's a liar. He's never going to do that, ever. But if he did, wouldn't it be interesting? Check this out. It might go something like this. Satan, You should cheat on your wife with that good-looking girl at the office. Person, I don't think so. It's wrong, and I would hurt my wife. Satan, fair enough. You make a good point. But look, I've run a cost-benefit analysis for you, Satan says. Here's what I've come up with. Benefits, a few moments of physical pleasure. That's it. Costs, disobedience to God, erode your communion with God, ruin or possibly even end your marriage, humiliate your wife, mess up your kids' lives, publicly humiliate and expose. It might cost you your job. It might mess up your co-worker's life. Diseases? Question mark. Dishonor and disgrace on your church and wreck your witness to others. Person. Yeah. Wow. Um, no thanks then. But see, here's the, here's the danger, ladies and gentlemen. That's never the way that temptations are presented to us. Right? They're presented as logical. They're presented as an impulse that you deserve. You deserve this. Go for it. Get it. This is your, you know, your best life now. Grab it while you can get it. You only live once. Live your truth. You be you. Be true to yourself. This is the Apostle Paul helping you fight against that and say, no, those are all illogical, they're irrational, and they're going to end in disaster. And contradistinction to that is this, instead, offer yourself up to God. Because look, those idols, they're never going to serve you. All they're going to do is take, take, take. That's why false worship also has priestly language. What do you do to idols? You serve them, right? Right? You sacrifice to them. What, what do idols take? They take your time. They take your attention. They take your life. They'll take your, your best resources. And you know what they'll give you back? Nothing. Heartache. That's what they'll give you. Jesus, on the other hand, he's the ruler who came to what? Serve. No other king ever did that. No other king ever did that. We sing about that at Christmas, Right? He's the only ruler who ever came to serve. And he says, Mark 10.45 says this, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So those idols aren't going to serve you, man. They're going to call you to serve. I got my career here and I just want to serve it. Well, your career will take your entire life. It'll take your family. It'll take your kids. It'll take all your money and your time. It'll take your life if you let it, right? Jesus, on the other hand, serves you. He gives to you. He gives you life. He gives you security. He gives you salvation. He gives you joy. He gives you resources. He gives you strength. He gives you assurance. I mean, the list is that we could rehearse it all day. And that's what that author's trying to help you. That's what Paul's trying to help you do. This is your reasonable, rational service. This is the only thing that makes sense if you're a thinking person. That's why we need Romans 1 through 11. If you just start your Christian life with this list of 39 commandments, you're going to flop. You're going to run out of gas really quick. You're going to be like the person I remember when I ran track in high school, and we were just about to run, and we knew that the same person that ran the half mile runs the mile. My coach told me, you see that guy over there? He's going to run in your race. Don't you follow him. You set your own pace, Clayton. That guy's going to wear you out. I think of that all the time, man, because that guy was a plant that pretty messed up, man. A track coach put a plant to like rabbit pace. Are you familiar with that? They put you on a false pace where you're going to just peter out and you're not going to be able to finish and then you lose. Ah, joke's on you. If you're living the Christian life with just a list and you don't have all the deep, rich theology and the motivation to serve King Jesus, if you're forgetting what he did for you, that this is rational and that this is logical and this is your reasonable spiritual service, man, you're going to run out of gas really quick. In fact, I really wanna help you with this. Man, see, I told you we weren't gonna get finished with this point, you didn't listen. <laughs> it Happens every week, guys, I don't know. I'm trying, trying to do better. Oh man, I can't even read that. Can you guys see that? So my friends, here you have on the left, here you have on the left, the person that's, you know, running the half mile run at, at a 50 minute lap pace. <laughs> no, over here on the left, you got the person that has forgotten Romans one through 11. They are living the, quote, Christian life for radically different reasons than the person who is secured and anchored and gripped by the gospel is. So check this out. Here's the list. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And the assumption is you're accepted because you have believed the gospel, okay? You believe the message. You've repented, you've turned, and you've trusted Jesus, Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. Gospel says I obey God to get God and to delight and resemble him. Religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. The list goes on, guys. The person who is entrenched in the good news message of Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, they're not going to wither under criticism because they're secure, they're anchored. The religious person, on the other hand, is radically insecure, and not only can he not handle or will he not invite criticism so he won't grow, but when it's offered and unsolicited, he'll get angry and vengeful and bitter. Has anybody ever been there? Have you ever lived your life like I did? I would get a text that says, hey, we need to talk, and it would wreck my night. I wouldn't sleep that night, and I've told you that before. That's an embarrassing, and I still, it's it's funny, somebody after the last time I mentioned that sent me that text after church. I'm like, will you stop already? And they're like, ha-ha, just kidding. I'm like, that ain't funny, man. My heart rate went up. But that was because of, of radical insecurity. You know why? Because Romans 1, and 1 through 11 hadn't filtered down into those parts of my heart, man, that needed that security. I needed that. I still need it. And you do too. John Wesley had the entire book of Romans read to him every day in his old age. Well, why do you do that for me? Just call me on the phone and just, start. <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ. <clears throat> well, guys, we're not finished yet, but we have to stop here, okay? Yeah, we're going to stop here. Let me, let me say this. Because the language in this section is priestly, it's about offering yourself uh, a living sacrifice. That's the odd thing we're going to talk about next week. You know, it's been said lots of times by different people. The, the, the hard thing about offering a living sacrifice is what? It keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. It won't stay there. That thing doesn't want to get burned, right? It crawls off. That's the, that's the uh, conundrum with this section. Offer yourselves a living sacrifice. It'd be one thing if we just say, okay, I'm going to blow myself up and say something religious and then I'm one and done and that's it. In some ways, I mean, that's insane and I'm not making light of that. False religions, some of them do call you to do that. It's satanic, right? But in some ways, that's easy. One and done or... You know what? I look, I look to my past, and I went to some evangelistic event, and you know, I gave my heart to Jesus, and it was a one and done, and now I'm secure. I'm okay. I don't have to think about it again. But no, this calls you to a living sacrifice. That means over and over, you're presenting yourself to God. Again, I'm re-consecrating myself. Lord, today is your day. I rejoice in it. I belong to you again. But here's the, the interesting part. As you think about Jesus, you know, we so often, we crawl off the altar. Jesus was on that cross, Now think about this, guys. Jesus was a willing sacrifice, completely willing. He even said, nobody takes my life from me. I do what? I lay it down. He could have called 10,000 legions of angels down. That would have been something to see, wouldn't it? I'm glad he didn't. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? There's that braveheart part of you that wanted to see him do it, right? But then that'd spell trouble for us, man. No hope of redemption. No, listen... As one author says, it wasn't nails that kept him on that cross. What was it? It was love. It was love for his father, because that sacrifice was going to be to God the Father, but it was also love for you. The lost treasure that God, in Christ, came down to this earth to plunge into the dark, fallen, disgusting waters of a fallen, rebellious planet to retrieve. He didn't crawl out that altar. He stayed there. And it was willing, and it was completely consecrated. He was the lamb without spot, without blemish. Perfect sacrifice. Because God, listen, in the Old Testament, you brought your best, you brought your perfect. You didn't bring anything that was slightly or gently used and smelled of urine, right? You brought the best, brought the best to God. And Jesus was sinless in word and thought and in deed. So, man, aren't you thankful as you think of offering yourself a willing sacrifice? The only way you are able to do that and the, and the most powerful motivation is that Jesus did it on your behalf. He secured for you a merciful life by securing for you all those mercies of God by dying in your place. Aren't you grateful? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to have grateful hearts. Help that to translate into willingly offering ourselves to you every day, God. And maybe today, is a sermon and a reminder, a message for somebody that's here or somebody watching from home, and Lord, their life has just drifted from one failed idolatry experiment to another. Maybe they don't even know why they came today, but here they are, Lord. And this message has confronted them and challenged them. And just remind them, this is a gentle, loving appeal from an apostle. He's coming alongside and calling on them to reconsider the path that they're on. The way of the sinner is hard and it ends in tragedy, and it's unreasonable, and it's illogical, and it's, and it's filled with rife, and rife with confusion, and heartache, and conflict, and it's going to end tragically. I pray, Lord, you would call them back today. Would your Holy Spirit roam in this place, Lord, and find hearts that are just barely clinging because they haven't been grounded properly in the good news of the gospel, what you came and finished and accomplished on our behalf, Lord. I pray that you would do that today, right now in this moment. That you would fill hearts with, with hope and ground them in assurance, Lord. Remind them that you love them, that you have loved them with an everlasting love and that you're not going anywhere. You've seen the worst. You've seen the worst in the deepest and the darkest part of their life, their history, the skeletons in their closet, Lord, and you're not going anywhere. You're ultimately committed to them, radically committed to them, Lord. And may they, in response to that today, radically commit themselves to you, Lord, not as a favor, not begrudgingly, but cheerfully, obediently, lovingly, reasonably. I pray all these things in in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.